Beloved, two of Jesus' parables concern the call of the gospel. In Luke 14, 16 through 24, we find the parable of the Great Supper, which we considered some four months ago. In that parable, a certain man makes a feast to which he calls many. And those people then make their excuses. They refuse to come. And he sends out his servants to call others, the poor, the maimed, the halt, and the blind, which enjoy the feast in the place of the originally called guests. And the occasion for that parable, beloved, was Jesus dining in a Pharisee's house. And the warning of that parable was, do not refuse to come lest you finally be excluded. And the parable ends with this warning from the man himself, none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. This parable seems to be the same parable or a very similar parable. It was told in the Passion Week, that last week of Jesus' earthly life when his sufferings come to a climax. It's part of a series of such parables. We read them earlier. In chapter 20, we have the parable of the workers in the vineyard. In Matthew 21, we have two parables, the parable of the two sons and the parable of the wicked husbandmen. We looked at those some months ago as well. And now in Matthew 22, Jesus tells this parable, the parable of the marriage of the king's son. There are, however, certain differences between this parable and the one in Luke 14. This parable, the occasion for it, is a much grander affair than simply a supper. This is a royal wedding. A king organizes a wedding feast for his son. In this parable, the guests do not merely make excuses, but their refusal to come is much more pointed. In this parable, the consequences for not coming are spelled out much more severely. In Luke 14, it was, they will not be able to taste of my supper. In this parable, the consequences are utter destruction. And that's fitting because as time progresses, the Jews to whom this parable was spoken become increasingly hardened in their wickedness and fill up the cup of their iniquity, which will be filled when they are responsible for the death of Jesus himself. Notice then, called to the royal wedding. Called to the royal wedding. First of all, a wedding prepared. Second, a call spurned. Third, a people gathered. And fourth, a person ejected or thrown out. In this parable, beloved, Jesus, as in many parables, illustrates the kingdom of heaven. Verse 2, the kingdom of heaven is like unto. The kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, is the sphere of God's gracious rule in the hearts and lives of God's people. And that kingdom is manifested on earth in the visible church. And it was in Christ's day manifested on earth in the visible nation of Israel. In this parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a king, verse 2 says, who made a marriage for his son. And that word marriage is simply a wedding. 
the day on which a man and woman are united in holy matrimony with a view to a lifelong marriage. That term marriage in the text includes the ceremony, and especially in this case, the festivities following the ceremony, celebrating that union, the happy day on which the king's son and the king's wife become one. And in the culture of that day, of course, a marriage included eating and drinking and merrymaking and festivities. And these things lasted many days, perhaps even a week or more. A marriage then was a joyous event. This is not an ordinary marriage or wedding. It is a royal wedding. The king's son is getting married. The king has found a bride for his son, a woman whom his son loves. And a royal wedding, of course, is an especially lavish affair. No expense will be spared to make sure that the wedding glorifies the king, glorifies the king's son, and makes the bride and the guests happy. An enjoyable celebration indeed. That's the parable. What's the reality? Well, simply, first of all, the king is God, the Father. Second, the king's son is Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. Third, the marriage is salvation, and especially the enjoyment of salvation. This has the emphasis in the parable. To be at this royal wedding, which is the wedding of Christ and his church, is to know blessedness. It is to enjoy fellowship with God, with the gracious God. It is to taste and know that God is good. It is to have and enjoy everlasting life, joy, and peace. It is to enjoy these things forever on the basis of Christ's imputed righteousness, on the basis of the forgiveness of sins. It is to possess and enjoy these things by the gracious operation of the Holy Spirit. And we read earlier at the beginning of the service, Revelation 19, verse 9, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Lamb is Jesus Christ, the King's Son. Enjoyment of the blessedness of the kingdom of heaven was the expectation of the Jews. That was the case when Jesus lived on the earth. The Jews said, we are going to be in the kingdom of God. We and we alone are going to be in the kingdom of God. And Jesus tells this parable, as well as the other parables in the Passion Week, to warn the Jews that they stood in grave danger of never entering the kingdom of heaven. They presumptuously thought that they were going to enter the kingdom of heaven simply because they were Jews. And Jesus says, no, not everyone in the nation of the Jews, and therefore not everyone in the visible church will enter the kingdom of of heaven. And the question you must ask yourself then as you read this parable is this, will I, will I sit down in the wedding supper? Will I be there enjoying this royal wedding? This wedding, this royal wedding, does not appear out of the blue. There is a very careful planning behind this royal wedding. Everything is meticulously prepared so that the king and his son can be glorified on that great day. The royal wedding is an occasion for the king to display the riches of his glorious kingdom 
and the honor of his excellent majesty. And so the wedding is carefully planned and prepared. The king's son must be prepared. He is dressed in royal splendor. The bride must be prepared. She must be beautiful for her royal husband. The king's banqueting hall must be prepared. Food and drink, music, all must be prepared. No expense must be spared. And thus we read in verse 4, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. How then did God prepare a marriage for his son and salvation and everlasting blessedness for his people? What kind of preparation went on, as it were, behind the scenes? Well, first of all, in eternity, God elected a people for his son. And the elect make up the bride. In eternity also, the father gave those elect to his son and commissioned his son to save those people. And the son, he loved the elect who were given to him by the father. In eternity also, the father planned to send his son into the world. He planned that his son should assume human flesh and suffer in the human nature and die upon the cross and be glorified because this was the price necessary to be paid to make atonement for the sins of the elect. Because the elect who are part of this bride of Jesus Christ, are unworthy. They're sinners. They're unclean. They're guilty. They're polluted. They must be cleansed in order for them to be made ready to marry the Son of God. Otherwise, not even the elect could sit down in fellowship with the holy God of heaven. And that was God's plan. In accordance with God's plan, Jesus Christ came into the world and did everything that was written about him in the Old Testament scriptures. And at the end of the week, the Passion Week, in which this parable is spoken, at the end of that week, Jesus Christ will accomplish and has accomplished everlasting redemption. He suffered. He shed his blood. He died on the cross. And therefore the call comes, it comes to us as well, behold, all things are made ready. Or 2 Corinthians 6, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The parable then focuses, from that point onwards, not on the king, not on the king's son, not on the bride, but on the guests. The guests. The wedding must have guests. Every wedding has guests. They're there to witness the marriage ceremony. They're there to celebrate the wedding. In reality, though, the bride and the guests who are in the wedding, they are the same. The mixing of metaphors in the Bible. Because on the one hand, you have the bride. She is the one to marry the Son of God. And the guests, well, they're part of the bride. But the parable focuses on the guests. How does it come to pass that there is a banqueting hall filled with guests. That is why this parable is told. Where do the guests come from? Who will be these guests? The Jews boasted that they were the guests. The Jews boasted in Christ's day, we have reserved seats 
at the wedding supper of Jehovah. And Jesus warns them that their presence in the kingdom of heaven is far from guaranteed. He warns them that if they do not repent and believe, others will enjoy the festivities of the royal wedding while they are cast out. One word dominates the parable. It's the word rendered bidden. Notice that word bidden or bid in the parable. That word is really called. It's the same word as is used in verse 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. You could render that word called throughout the parable. Them that were bidden, verse 3. Them that were called. Tell them which are bidden, verse 4. Tell them which are called. They which were bidden, verse 8. They which were called. Bid to the marriage, verse 9. Call to the marriage. And then verse 14, many are called. When we see bidden, we might think that the meaning is to invite. And many view that word as meaning invite. We speak of a wedding invitation. You get a wedding invitation in the mail. It says, Mr. and Mrs. Smith kindly request your presence at the wedding of their children. Please RSVP by a certain date. That's an invitation. An invitation is the expression of the gracious will of the host. He invites because he loves the person whom he invites. He invites because he desires that person's presence to enjoy the planned festivities. But an invitation carries with it no obligation to come. You can say no to an invitation. You can politely decline an invitation without serious consequences. There's no penalty attached if you decline an invitation. The word invitation does not fit here, beloved. Bidden, called, is not the same thing as to invite. We have here a king, and the king rep represents God in heaven. The king does not graciously or politely invite. He calls. He calls people to come. He requires them to come. He obligates them to come. If they do not come, there will be consequences. If they do not come, there will be a penalty. Not merely that they miss out on the festivities of the day, but they will incur the king's wrath if they do not come. They incur the king's wrath because by refusing to come, they dishonor the king and they dishonor his son. You understand that, of course. One does not lightly decline a call to a royal wedding. That would offend royal protocol. And one does not lightly decline the call of the wedding supper of the Son of God. Not to come is to insult the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Not to come is to tread underfoot the blood of the Son of God, to count the blood of the covenant an unholy thing, and to do, and to do despite unto the Spirit of grace. See Hebrews 12, 29. And God is serious when he 
calls. Here's what the Canons of Dort have to say in the third and fourth heads of doctrine, Article 8. As many as are called by the gospel, think this parable, are unfeignedly called. And that word unfeignedly means without pretense. God is not pretending when he calls. And literally, the original has seriously called. For God hath most earnestly and truly shown in his word that what is pleasing to him, namely, that those who are called should come to him. He moreover seriously promises eternal life and rest to as many as shall come to him and believe on him. Serious God is in calling through the gospel. And this call then to attend the royal wedding of the Son of God is issued to everyone who hears the preaching of the gospel. It was issued by Christ through this parable to the Jews. It is issued to you this morning who hear the preaching of God's word. It is issued every time someone hears solid, reformed preaching. Not everyone in the history of the world has heard this call, but many have. Many have heard this call and many have perished because they have refused to take heed to this call. And Jesus makes this clear in verse 14, for many are called, but few are chosen. In other words, there are many more called than are chosen. The call of the gospel goes forth to many more than the elect, and that's God's will and purpose. God wills that many people, even the reprobate, hear the call. And that's why we reject the idea of a well-meant offer or a free offer of the gospel. The call to come to the wedding of Jesus Christ is not an offer expressing the gracious goodwill of God toward all the hearers, but it is a command. It is a demand expressing the duty of all the hearers. God commands you to come. God demands that you come. God commands, God demands that you believe in Jesus Christ. God commands that you repent of your sins, that you love God and his son, Jesus Christ. That's the call of the gospel. Failure to come has serious consequences. That's the warning in this parable. In verses 5 through 7, this call is spurned. Now, to understand this, we need to understand the sequence of events. It's not that these people suddenly, with no warning, heard that the king's son was getting married. Instead, these people had been called, had been warned, had been notified well in advance. They had received notice well in advance that this wedding was going to happen. And they had indicated in some fashion their interest in coming. In a certain sense, they had already submitted their RSVPs. And that's clear in verse 3. And he sent out his servants, and here's my translation, and he sent out his servants to call them that had been called. And the idea then is that God had called them earlier. Perhaps you might call this a preliminary call. And this then is the final call or the later call. And this call came to the Jews. 
very early in the Jews' history, they had been notified of the coming kingdom of God. Already in Genesis 3.15, God had promised salvation through the seed of the woman. Over many centuries then, God had revealed the kingdom of heaven to the Jews. They saw it in the types and shadows. They had the ceremonies and the sacrifices. They had the promises to the fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They knew the prophecies. And in those things, God was saying to Israel, I am planning a royal wedding to honor my son. Your presence is required to glorify me with my son. The wedding will be lavish. The wedding will be rich. You are commanded to come. And this call came to the Jews throughout the Old Testament. Come to the coming wedding. And the Jews, by their external religious observances, said, We are coming. We're coming. Count us in. We will be ready when the call comes. And that's how a wedding works. That's how a royal wedding works. The notifications are sent out well in advance. Perhaps a year in advance, a date is given for the RSVP. And the people who say they are coming, who indicate that they have a desire to come, are expected to be present on the day. And then the king, as the day of the wedding approaches, sends out his servants. Verse 3, he sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. God did that when he sent the prophets especially the later prophets, and when he sent John the Baptist, and when he sent his own son to preach, repent for the kingdom of God is nigh. The wedding that you've been waiting for for all of these centuries is almost here. Come, come. And the response in verse 3 is blunt refusal. They would not come. The issue here is their will. They would not is they were not willing. They did not want to come. And here, of course, is where Arminianism boasts and says that man's will is where the power is. But notice, Jesus says they will not come. They were not willing. They would not come. The power of man's will is simply this, the power to refuse to come. But man's will does not have the power to come, to believe, to repent, to turn, to be converted of himself. Man's will is bound to sin. Man does not want to come. He does not want the forgiveness of sins or joy or peace in the Holy Spirit. He does not want fellowship with God. He hates those things and he hates the God who gives such things and he hates the Christ who purchased such things. And so the response of the Jews was, no, we're not coming. No, we're not interested in coming. The king, though, does not take no for an answer. Instead, he sends more servants, in verse 4, tell them which are bidden, those who were already called, tell them which are bidden, behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready, come unto the marriage. He sends more servants, and he commands these servants to impress upon the people the urgency of the king's commandment. 
Tell the people, says the king, about the grandeur of the feast that I have prepared. Tell them I have spared no expense. Tell them it is all arranged. Everything is ready. Urge them to come immediately. And that too is what a preacher of the gospel does. He says, salvation, full and free, has been prepared for poor sinners. Nothing has been left undone. Jesus Christ has poured out his precious blood. He has accomplished salvation through his sufferings. Sinners do not need to do anything to earn or to merit or accomplish salvation. Jesus has done everything already. Come. Simply come. Believe in this Jesus. The second response was scorn. They made light of it. They viewed it as worthless. They mocked the idea of being called to, call, to attend such an event. They viewed this as beneath their dignity and a waste of their time. We should come to such an event as this to honor the king and his son, to a fellowship with the triune God in Jesus Christ in heaven forever. No, we don't want to. We've no interest in such a thing. What did they do instead? They went their ways. Verse 5, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. They preferred everything else to the royal wedding. One man went to his farm, another man went to his merchandise, and these, of course, are legitimate things, but not if they hinder your coming to the royal wedding of the Son of God. And that, of course, is what men are like. Everything else in their life is more important to them than Jesus Christ and his salvation. They have time for their business. They have time for their career. They have time for their bank account. They will queue up to go shopping. They will sleep all night outside in the cold to snap up tickets to a concert. They enjoy their parties and their entertainment, but they have no interest in everlasting life. They made light of it. And a preacher could, with all the eloquence of angels, he could glorify God, he could speak about the beauty of Jesus Christ, he could speak about the wonders of salvation in Christ, and the unbeliever will still say, I have no interest in that. That is the most boring thing in all the world. I have my career, I have my business, I have my entertainment, I have my friends, I have my family. Do not bother me with such trivial things. And a believer might invite an unbelieving friend or family member to hear the preaching of the gospel, and the response will be, leave me alone. I don't want to know about such things. Indifference, willful unbelief, scorn. These are the responses to the call to come. So first there was blunt refusal, I won't. Then there was despising of the king and the king's son and the king's message, I have better things to do. And finally, in verse 6, there is an even worse response, there is violence. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully or acted disgracefully towards them and slew them or killed them. Some people are not satisfied with indifference or blunt refusal or earthly mindedness or mockery towards the gospel. They so hate God and his son that even God's messengers enrage them and the call comes and they persecute those who preach the gospel to them. And this, of course, 
happened to Jesus. He was crucified because they wouldn't come. This, of course, happened to the apostles. And this happens, of course, throughout the history of the New Testament age. Preachers are not welcomed. And eventually, preachers are persecuted in order to silence that hated message. The king then, in verse 7, is wroth. And wroth means angry. He burns in anger against those who spurned his call, despised his son, and mistreated and killed his servants. And justice, says Jesus, is swift and severe. Verse 7, he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. This, of course, happened to the Jews. After the Jews rejected Jesus and persecuted the apostles, God sent his armies, and he used as his armies the armies of the Romans, and the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70, burned up that city, and destroyed the temple. And God destroys all the persecutors of his people throughout history. And final destruction will come upon the despisers of the gospel on the last day. No one, says Jesus Christ, spurns the call of the gospel with impunity. God punishes those who do not come. And again I say, that does not fit with the idea of a well-meant gospel offer. No one is destroyed for refusing to comply with a well-meant offer. In verse 8, the parable moves from the called to the gathered. The people who were originally called were not worthy, says the king, to partake of the festivities. They were not worthy to participate in the royal wedding. They refused to come. They despised the king and his son. They persecuted his messengers. God destroyed them. But that does not mean now that the royal wedding is called off or that the feast is cancelled. No guests. Let's just call the whole thing off. Let's not have the feast after all. That's not the case at all. The king calls his servants again and commands his servants to call others. Go ye therefore, verse 9, into the highways, and as many as ye shall find bid, or call, to the marriage. These ones had not been called before. These ones did not know the king, did not know the king's son, had not received advance notice of a coming wedding. They are told rather of an imminent wedding. They are told to come forthwith without delay because it's all ready. It's all prepared. They must come. The food has been prepared. It's on the plates, as it were. The drink has been poured out. The seating has been arranged. Drop everything now and come. And whom must the servants call? Verse 9 tells us, As many as ye shall find. And where must the servants look for guests for this royal wedding? The answer again in verses 9 and 10 is, the highways. And the highways are not the main roads. The highways are the byways and the intersections. And the idea is go out and call everyone you find, wherever they are. Make no discrimination between Jew and Gentile, male and female, rich and poor, bond and free, good or bad. But call everyone you find. We call that the promiscuous preaching of the gospel. Think of the parable of the sower, sowing your seed everywhere. The content of the preaching 
his full, free, and prepared salvation in the blood of the crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ. And with that promiscuous preaching comes the promise. Preach to everyone and preach to everyone the promise. The promise is not to everyone. The promise is to those who believe. Preach to everyone. Whosoever believeth shall be saved. And with the promiscuous preaching and the particular promise comes the serious command, bid them to the marriage. And that too is the teaching of the Canons of Dort. Canons 2, Canons Head 2, 5. Moreover, the promise of the gospel is that whosoever believeth in Christ crucified shall not perish, but have everlasting life. There's the promise. This promise, together with the command to repent and believe, ought to be declared and published to all nations and to all persons promiscuously and without distinction, to whom God out of his good pleasure sends the gospel. We have here again the external call. The external call is what you hear in the preaching. What everyone who hears the preaching hears in the preaching. The external call. But more is needed than the external call. You must not think that the people in the highways are more receptive to the gospel than the ones first bidden. You ought not think that these people are going to say, yes, yes, I'll come. I'd love to come. Thank you for the kind invitation. That's not the idea at all. If the king sends messengers from now until the end of time and merely bids or calls people to come externally, nobody will come except some hypocrites who will not really come. The response of all men is always the same. They will not. They make light of the gospel. They prefer other things. Or they are openly hostile. And therefore something else must happen. They must be gathered. That's verse 10. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished or filled with guests. To gather is not to invite. To gather is not even to call. To gather is to bring. To bring. And that's the work not of the preacher, not of the prophet, but that's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit opens the hearts of sinners. The Holy Spirit works faith and repentance in the hearts of sinners. The Holy Spirit applies the gospel to the hearts of sinners. And powerfully and sweetly and irresistibly, he draws such elect sinners to Jesus Christ. Thus, he overcomes that natural rebellion that resides in our hearts, and he causes us to come. He gathers us into the church. That's what God does in the New Testament age. He gathers the church. Jew and Gentile, male and female, rich and poor, bond and free, are gathered into the church. God sends forth the gospel, and with the gospel, he sends forth the Holy Spirit, and the church is gathered. And thus we read, the wedding was furnished or filled with guests. So the gospel was not in vain, beloved. The gospel had its desired effect. The gospel accomplished what God sent the gospel to accomplish, which was, on the one hand, the hardening of the wicked, and on the other hand, the gathering 
of God's elect by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then, beloved, there is an epilogue to the parable. Among the joyful guests, the king finds a man in verse 11 which had not on a wedding garment, and he is ejected or thrown out. In verse 11, the king came in to see his guests. The king is satisfied and delights in the wedding feast that he has prepared for his son. The banqueting hall is full of guests, eating and drinking and conversing and laughing and having a wonderful time of fellowship with God and with one another. How gratifying that is to a gracious host. God delights in the fellowship that his people enjoy with him in Jesus Christ. It gives him great pleasure to see the people whom he loves, whom he chose, whom he redeemed, and whom he called and gathered, enjoying salvation in his Son. It glorifies him. It glorifies his Son, Jesus Christ. It glorifies his grace that sinners who are unworthy should taste and should see that God is good. And yet, there's a blot. A blot. There's something out of place, something offensive that meets the king's eye. At a certain table sits a man not having on a wedding garment. This was part of the culture of that day. The king in his generosity to his guests, gave his guests a wedding garment as they arrived at the wedding. And this wedding garment was a beautifully, carefully prepared, beautifully tailored piece of clothing. It honored the king that his guests would wear the garment that the king provided. And so servants would stand by the doorway as the guests arrived and would give to the guests their wedding garments. Everyone then was expected to wear such a garment. And they all were, wearing these precious garments, a sea, as it were, of, of men and women and children and young people wearing these beautiful garments. And then the king walks in and he sees one man who sticks out like a sore thumb He's not wearing the appropriate garment. He is a man who dares to sit in the king's house inappropriately attired. And the king confronts him. Friend, he says, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And the king uses the word friend. And really the idea of that is Fellow, fellow, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are at my wedding, the wedding of my son, sitting in that clothing and not wearing the clothing that I prepared and supplied? And the man is silenced by the question. He has no answer to the question. He has no excuse for such outrageous behavior. And the king commands that this man be thrown out. Bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Who is this man? This man is, as we often have in the parables, a hypocrite. In the church and kingdom of God, in its visible form, we have this hypocrite, but he does not truly belong. And God confronts him and exposes him. And here is his hypocrisy. He is not suitably dressed for the presence of God. And that's not a reference to wearing nice clothes in church. 
but rather is a reference to the hypocrite's refusal to wear and receive the covering that God gives to his people in the gospel. The garment is a reference not to something that we do or something that we provide for ourselves. That was his offense, of course. He wore his own clothes. His own clothes were unsuitable for fellowship with the king of kings. The wedding garment is therefore something that God gives to us. The wedding garment is the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ received in justification. The wedding garment is to be washed in Christ's blood so that one is fit to sit in the presence of God. The garment covers our sins in the sight of God. And here is a man who says to himself, I don't need Christ. I don't need the forgiveness of sins. I don't need the blood of the cross. I don't need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I'll come in my own works and sit here in the presence of God. And by refusing the wedding garment, by wearing his own clothes, his own works, he was not justified in the sight of God, but condemned. He was cast into hell. We enjoy, beloved, fellowship with God in the kingdom of God only on the basis of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we receive that righteousness not by working for it, but by faith alone. And thus, we come into God's presence wearing the wedding garment which he gives and provides. And so, beloved, come. Come to the wedding, the royal wedding of the Son of God. Come by faith. Embrace Jesus Christ. Be clothed with his perfection and taste and see that God is good. Amen.